Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. Follow us on Untapped to get notified of all the new beers we bring in. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch. Cunha swings, hits it high and deep to left. This is way back, going, going, and it is long gone. Goodbye. That one about halfway up the seats in left center field beyond the 385-foot marker. A three-run home run for Ronald Acuna Jr. Fetty to the belt. Pitches home. Swanson a line drive to left field. That'll loop in for a hit. Charging Hernandez. They're going to send Harris. The throw to the plate comes in, and it's offline, and both runners move up. 8-2 to two Atlanta. Three consecutive pitches hit for base hits here in the frame. Three men on the left side of the pitch. Swing and a line drive to the left field line. That's going to be a base hit. Both runners are going to score. Olsen from third, Riley around from second, crosses the plate on a single to left and two runs batted in for Marcelo Zuna. It's now the Braves, 12 in the Nationals, 2. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 9th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, as many of you listening probably know, uh, there are reasons that the Nationals are in the position that they are in, and there are reasons that the Braves are in the position that they are in. Not only reigning defending World Series champions, but the Braves have won the National League East each of the last four years. Uh, The Braves have become what the Nats were for so long, and uh, we got a stiff reminder of this on Friday night with what happened uh, to the Nats at the Braves in game one of a three-game series. Eric Fetty got shellacked. Ronald Acuna Jr. hit a home run off Eric Fetty that I think is still traveling. And uh, Mark, this was another one of these ugly games for the Nats in this 2022 season. It's just such a reminder, Al, of how vast the gap is between these two franchises right now. Two franchises that were at least on par for a while, if not the Nationals being ahead of them, not just because they won the World Series in 2019, but there was a stretch of time where the Nats were winning the division, usually with the Braves, you know, their toughest competitor behind them. And right now, you can't even think of, you can't even conjure up a scenario in which these two teams are 
in the same category. They're just completely different stages right now. Atlanta is one of the best teams in baseball. They are the defending champs and they're acting like it. And the Nationals have a long way to go to get back there. And, you know, at some point they're going to play each other and the Nats are going to get a good performance all around and they're going to win one of these games. But what we've seen over the last few weeks, it's hard to see how they do that because they're not just getting beaten. They're getting ransacked. Most of these games against them have not been close. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the Nats get bullied when they play the Braves. And the Nats certainly got bullied on Friday night. And, you know, it's remarkable to me with the Braves. They lost Freddie Freeman this past offseason, right? Like, they're franchise player. And depending on what you want to believe, uh, he may regret having left the Braves. But that's a different conversation. But it's like, the Braves lost that guy and yet are still a really good team this season. And I actually think that there are a lot of lessons within that. One of them is... In baseball, over the last 25 years, there are countless examples of teams losing stud players and then still being good. The Nats are an example of that. Bryce Harper gone. Next year, win a World Series championship. But what the Braves have established, I I think it really is impressive. And, you know, we did talk about this the last time the Nats faced the Braves. But, you know, if you're a Nats fan, right, and you're like, okay, what do I want my team to become? Who do I look at as a model? I don't like saying this because we all can't stand the Braves, but like, The Braves really have become an admirable franchise with the sustained success, losing guys, and it doesn't matter. It feels like every year now, the Braves are among the best teams in the majors. Their baseball operations department, so from the GM down, front office manager players are as good as any in baseball and are showing they can do it consistently. And a couple other things to add to that, they didn't just lose Freddie Freeman. They've, over the course of this season, lost Ozzie Albies, like an MVP style candidate. And what's happened? Orlando Arcia steps in and is playing just as well. They only got Ronald Acuna. He missed most of last season with a torn ACL. They still win the World Series. And he started this year late while he was still recovering from that. And they haven't missed a beat. It's really remarkable, the talent, the depth the way they continue to pump guys up through their own system and then make calculated moves to fill the holes they have. Yes, they lost Freddie Freeman. They wind up with Matt Olson, who is maybe not Freddie Freeman, but he's a really good player as well. And he's fit right into that lineup. They've done a remarkable job of this and all the credit to Alex Anthopoulos and Brian Snitker and all of them. They have earned all the praise and success that they've had the last couple of years. They are a model franchise in baseball right now. And and do, in a different way, you know, I know the Dodgers, we would say, oh, that's the team you want to emulate. Well, the Dodgers have ridiculous money that hardly anybody else has. The Braves aren't in that position. The Braves are smart. They spend some money, but they don't go exorbitant, but they make smart moves and have the right combination of free agents, trades, and homegrown talent. And they've been able to lock up their guys, which is another big part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, they they got a gift of a long-term contract with Acuna. Uh, If only the Nats had gotten that with Juan Soto, right? But like, that's a a one-in-a-million shot. But no doubt, there is a depth to the Braves. There is a resourcefulness to the Braves. There's an intellect to the Braves. Alex Anthopoulos is a big analytics guy, and the Braves win. And hopefully, the Nats will get back to that at some point here. So, Eric Fetty had been on a nice little run here lately. He had had some good starts, uh, six scoreless innings and a 3-0 win at the Orioles on June 21st, two runs in five innings and a 3-2 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park on June 27th. His last outing, two runs in six innings, six strikeouts, that 7-4, 10-inning loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park 
this past Sunday afternoon. But if you have followed Eric Fetty in this 2021 season, you know that he also has had some hideous outings. He's had multiple blow-up outings, and he had maybe his worst outing of the season on Friday night. Uh, Eric Fetty got rocked in this game. Eight runs in three innings. He gave up eight hits, three home runs, a double, and four singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch. He recorded a mere one strikeout, and he ended up throwing 75 pitches over his three innings. I mentioned him giving up three home runs. One of them was an absolute moonshot. Fetty, in a five-run second inning for the Braves, gave up a one-out three-run homer to Ronald Acuna Jr. on an absolute bomb to right for a 6-0 Braves lead. Fetty had had Acuna down at 1.02. The homer, 446 feet per stat cast. And for those of you who did not watch the game or have not seen the highlight of this home run, the reaction from Fetty as soon as Acuna made contact was priceless, okay? I mean, look, it's not funny if you're a Nats fan, right? But it was kind of funny seeing how Fetty reacted to this. He knew the instant that that ball was going a long way. That was some home run by Acuna, and uh, that was some night for Eric Fetty and not in a good way. It was a uh, ridiculous home run, and it capped off a stretch that I want to talk about here in the second inning because this was Eric Fetty in a microcosm, the worst of Eric Fetty in a microcosm. I count five straight batters in which he was up in the count 0-2. Five straight hitters. He gets ahead in the count 0-2. Four of them end up reaching two walks, a two-run double, and then the three-run Acuna homer. And this has been a recurring issue for him. He gets ahead in the count and he can't put them away either because he's trying to make the perfect pitch and things are out of the zone and they take him. And next thing you know, you go from 0-2 to 3-2 or they foul off tough pitches or ultimately in this case, they hit a couple of bombs off of him. He has not been able to get hitters out. And I don't know if that's a case of pitch selection, if it's a case of not executing in those situations, or if it's just the stuff isn't good enough to put away hitters. And that's a concern if it is. Uh, We've seen he has sometimes the ability to strike hitters out, but generally speaking, he's not a high strikeout guy. If you don't have that ability, you can't put guys away. It doesn't matter. You go ahead 0-2 and it makes no difference. And that stretch right there of those five hitters culminating with the Acuna homer, that said everything about this game and about so many of Eric Fetty's starts this year. Every once in a while, He'll do that and he'll still get out of it. The good starts where we say, oh, he went five innings, he had two runs, but he threw 100 pitches because of long at-bats like that. But in the worst starts like this, he gets ahead, he runs the pitch count up, and then he can't even put him away at the end. And that just, I mean, that was a 46-pitch inning in the second. And it didn't have to be because he was ahead of every single hitter. Yeah, I mean, I I like to note that when we note big hits in games, if a pitcher had a guy down 0-2 or 1-2, because I think that it is instructive because you can see, hey, he could have put the guy away and he didn't, like you just talked about. I feel like this is the number one thing that Davey Martinez has talked about with Fetty, that he can put guys away and he just doesn't put guys away. And it really is something that stands out now with the Nats rotation. You know, the Nats for years had all of these strikeout pitchers. Max Scherzer was a strikeout pitcher. Steven Strasburg was a strikeout pitcher. It's interesting. Tanner Rourke could be a strikeout pitcher. Gio Gonzalez could be a strikeout pitcher. Each guy averaged more than eight strikeouts per nine innings in that 2017 season. And you kind of took it for granted, especially, you know, in the overall environment in baseball now of like there being a lot of strikeouts. 
But boy, when you look at the Nats over these last two years, they don't have guys who generate strikeouts. We have seen Patrick Corbin's strikeout rate plummet. We all know that someone like Fetty is not a strikeout pitcher. We know that this season you've had guys, you know, the various people who have started games have not been strikeout guys. I mean, the only guy really right now who is a true strikeout pitcher for the Nats is Josiah Gray. And that's why we've made such a big deal out of that, because that feels like that's such an encouraging thing. But that's become such a rare thing. The Nats don't have guys who miss bats. And when you can't do that, it really puts you in a tough spot. And when you can't finish off guys, as Fetty clearly can't, that really can ruin you. And that obviously helped to ruin him on Friday night. And it makes it all the worse when you don't have good defense behind you. <laughs> if you're going to be a pitch to contact guy, which is what they some of these guys try to be, you better be able to get the ball on the ground and have really good infielders. And we continue to see that not being the case. And I don't want to pick on him, but there were a couple of ground balls in this game to the right side of the infield that you're like, Boy, a good second baseman should make that play, and Cesar Hernandez couldn't make it. Now, some of them, they were in a shift, and he wasn't in the right position and all that, but there were a few that's like, man, that was a potentially makeable play, and they don't have that. Their defense around the infield, as we know, has been really bad this year. They're last in the league in uh, defensive runs saved, and most of it, if you break it down by position, is in the infield. It's not so much the outfield. So it's a bad combination. You don't strike guys out and you don't catch the ball, make plays in the field. How are you going to get anybody out in the long run? That's a tough way to go about it. Yeah. You know, it's funny with the Nats too, because their defense has been bad for years now, actually. Like even when they were good, like in those Dusty Baker years, the Nats were not great defensively. I remember I used to talk about that, how, but because their pitching was so good, it kind of didn't matter. Like they were able to overcome that. Well, now that the pitching isn't so good, you really do see that bad defense come back to haunt you. And, you know, with Fetty, he has had a good number of decent, if not good starts this year. But the blowups do stand out. I mean, what happened on Friday night certainly stands out. There was that 11-2 loss to the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on April 20th. Fetty in that game, seven runs, six earned in three into third innings. You know, there have been some other outings in which these things have not gone well. There was a game at the New York Mets on uh, May 30th, 13-5, lost six runs in one in a third innings. I mean, some of these lines are pretty ugly. And that's the thing, too. And that usually is, a, is a, um, a characteristic of a pitcher who isn't that good. When it doesn't go well, it really doesn't go well. Not that, you know, this guy is common, but with Max, you know, we've discussed, right? On nights on which he didn't have his best stuff, he still was able to figure out a way. Maybe he gave up four runs in six innings, but it's like, okay, you can live with that. You can work with that. With Fetty, you know, with Patrick Corbin, with Yohan Adone, when it goes bad, it really goes bad. There's a difference between four runs and six innings and eight runs and three innings. Like there's a big gap there. And your ability to sort of manage that gap, I do think says a lot about you as a pitcher. Like it's not always how good is your good. I think it's also how bad is your bad. Do you allow things to get really bad? And unfortunately with Fetty, multiple times this season, things have gotten really bad. And that's how you end up with a 501 ERA, even though if you break down start to start, I think he has a majority of his starts have given up two runs or less. But when the blowups happen, that's how you end up with a five ERA. And look at the end of the season, as Mike Rizzo says, look at the back of the baseball card. That's going to tell you what you are. Eric Fetty is a five ERA pitcher. This is who he's been for the majority of his career. It's frustrating. You would like to see the bad starts at least be more competitive than this. Now, 
you know, he's faced a really good lineup. I feel like it's been a bad matchup for him over the years. The Braves have always given him trouble, but it's not like he's getting beat on three one pitches. Like I said, he's ahead in the count. He's showing he can throw strikes to good hitters and he just can't finish it. And that is so aggravating because I think we know that he is better than this. You know, he may not be a frontline big league pitcher, but we've seen enough to know that he can be a back of the rotation guy if he can just be a little more consistent, avoid the big blowups and just learn how to put away some hitters. And it just has not happened at this point. No, it hasn't. And this season continues to mirror last season. Last season, Fetty good through 10 starts and then the season fell apart and he finished that season with an ERA of 547. This season, Fetty was good. I think it was through nine starts. Then the problem started. Now his ERA is over five. Like this is eerily similar to what happened last year. And last year ended up being Fetty's, you could argue, worst season as a major league pitcher. And maybe this season ends up rivaling that. We don't know. But like back-to-back seasons of five-plus ERAs off having been encouraged over the first, say, third of each season, just disappointing to see. And it does make you wonder, and we'll see what happens, okay? But Patrick Corbin, very good over his last two starts against Pittsburgh and Miami. What is going to happen on Saturday at the Braves? Can Corbin manage facing this lineup? Or does Corbin end up getting rocked the way that we saw Fetty get rocked? Again, Fetty was coming off some good outings here lately, right? But they were against some lesser teams. So what's going to happen with our guy Corbin on Saturday? We shall see. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small town charm and big league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline now the pitch swinging a high drive straight away center and deep back in this one Harris to the warning track at the wall looking up and it's gone right over the 400 mark in straightaway center field home run number 16 for Juan Soto 
Gets the Nationals on the board. It's 6-2 Atlanta. And Morton still has never retired Juan Soto. Soto 4 for 4 with 5 walks and now a home run in career matchups against the veteran right-hander. There were at least a few things we can point at in terms of positives on Friday night. So Juan Soto had a nice game in this game. Now, obviously, the Braves had more guys having nice games, but Juan Soto on Friday night had himself multiple hits, uh, also drew a walk, top of the first, a one-out six-pitch walk. He and the Nats two-run third, a two-out, two-run homer to dead center to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-2. Yeah, that's the thing. The Nats were down by so much uh, so early in this game, but Soto... Did smash a two-run homer, 418 feet per stat cast. And then Soto in the top of the eighth, a two-out opposite field single to left field on a 1-2 pitch. We've seen him get on base a good bit here lately. We've been waiting for Soto to bust out as uh, this season goes on here. You know, who knows if we're seeing it, but uh, it was nice to see Soto do as he did on Friday night. I like the signs that we're seeing of him since coming back from the calf injury. It was singles in Philadelphia and walks, which, you know, that's fine. It's a good first step. And I mean, that home run swing was as good of a Juan Soto swing as you're going to see. That was really nice to see him be able to do that. You had quality at bats really throughout the game from him, a walk in the first inning, the single opposite field single in the eighth. He kind of did it all. I like that. I like it. I don't like the fact that He's never coming up with anybody on base because Cesar Hernandez is really struggling right now, and they don't really have anyone else to hit leadoff. I don't know what the alternative would be because Lane Thomas has struggled himself lately. You wish there was a little more damage. I guess the Soto homer was a two-run homer, so that's something. But the good news is Juan Soto's starting to look like Juan Soto again. He's got a long way to go, but like we saw last year, he does have the ability to turn it on. And I don't think any of us really expected him to struggle to that extent for the entire season. It was only a matter of time. So first signs of it, he's not all the way back yet, but I like what I've seen on on this road trip for sure. Yeah. You know, to your question about Cesar Hernandez, I know that these guys don't draw walks, but at least they do get hits. I mean, what about Luis Garcia or K. Bear Ruiz? Just if you want to try to get people who get on base, okay? I mean... Garcia has one walk the whole year, so I I recognize that. But Cesar Hernandez isn't doing very well. Lane Thomas isn't doing very well. At least Garcia and Ruiz get you hits. Do you think Davey would even entertain that? Or do you think that that's one of these things that just like he's not going to do, put a Garcia or Ruiz in that number one spot? I think probably not, especially in the situation that they're in. You know, they are trying to develop Luis Garcia into the kind of big league player and hitter they want him to be. And he's been pretty successful from an offensive standpoint. They acknowledge he's not a work the count, take your walks guy. And they're not going to try to make him be that. They just want him to swing at good pitches and make sure that he's having good contact, not contact just for the sake of it. I feel like if you put him up there, Right or wrong, it's just your mindset's going to change. And you're saying, well, I got to get on in front of one. And now he's coming out of his comfort zone. If there was a thought that, hey, in the long run someday that we think he could be a leadoff hitter, then sure, you give him a a shot at it now and learn how to do it. But I don't think they envision that in the long run. I don't know where Luis Garcia fits eventually as a hitter. Probably more of like a six hitter. Maybe if the power develops, he might be a five hitter. I just, I don't really see him as a top of the order guy, which is fine. He doesn't have to be that. Yes, you ideally want to have Soto come up with more guys on base, but they're not in the middle of a pennant race. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to turn Luis Garcia into something that he's not uh, at this stage of his career where he's enjoying success in the big leagues and why mess with that right now? 
Well, come August 3rd, Luis Garcia might be your cleanup batter, but <laughs> that's another conversation. Number three, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, depending on what you're doing with <laughs> he, he and Ruiz are your three and four hitters if things go the way we think they may go. It might. Yeah, that, that just might be the case. So here's another positive from Friday night. Jordan Weems. What has gotten into Jordan Weems over these last two Nationals games? Uh, as you may recall, uh, on the last installment of the Nats Chat podcast, we made mention of what Jordan Weems did on Thursday in that 5-3 Nats loss at the Philadelphia Phillies. Weems in that game, perfect bottom of the six with three strikeouts on a total of 10 pitches. He nearly had an immaculate inning on Thursday. Weems on Friday night, two perfect innings with three strikeouts. He came into the game in the bottom of the fourth with the bases loaded, nobody out, and the Nats down 8-2. It was Weems who relieved Eric Fetty. Jordan Weems recorded three consecutive outs without allowing an inherited runner to score, including recording back-to-back swinging strikeouts of the Braves' numbers three and four batters, Matt Olson and Austin Riley, on a total of seven pitches, and then Weems tossed a perfect bottom of the fifth. Look, it's only a two-game stretch. I mean, who knows what it means? But man, when's the last time any Nats reliever, especially a guy like Weems, who's been up and down between AAA Rochester and the Major League level over the last few weeks here, has had a two-game stretch like this? What a job by Jordan Weems on Thursday and Friday. It's something to see. Uh, I don't know if it's sustainable or not, but it's nice to see that he has that ability. Getting swings and misses with his fastball, four swings and misses on his fastball, another two with his sliders. That's six whiffs out of the 25 pitches that he threw in those two innings. Very weak contact when they did make contact with anything. He's averaging 97 with the fastball and an 88 mile an hour slider, plus a changeup that he throws in as well a little bit. So They've talked about his stuff all year long, even going back to spring training and thinking that he could be someone. Now, the the first stint up here was not real good. He had a bad blow-up outing, ends up getting sent down. But the last two days has looked very good against some good lineups. We'll see. You know, I've seen enough to say, okay, let's see some more. (laughs) You never know what you might have. I I would say right now, the guys I want to see more of out of the bullpen are Jordan Weems and Mason Thompson, who also had a good one the other day. And there is potential from those two. They're, they're far from locks to be long-term pieces of the puzzle, but there is potential there and enough to say, I'd like to see more of them. And maybe eventually as this moves along, you'd like to see them in some higher leverage spots and see how they respond to that as well. Yeah, Jordan Weems is not like some 23-year-old prospect or anything like that. The Nats signed him as a free agent this past March. This is his age 29 season. He was drafted by the Boston Red Sox in the third round of the 2011 draft. So, you know, he's one of these classic relievers who's a cast-off. You know, the Nats just kind of scooped him up. And um, at least right now, the guy's on fire. These last two games, he's looked pretty good. Also, and this is a minor thing, but How'd you like the infield single by Yadiel Hernandez in this game? Yeah, Yadiel Hernandez had an infield single in this game, and he did something that you don't often see. So he hit like almost like a swinging bunt toward first base, and he impressively dodged the attempted tag by Braves first baseman Matt Olson. Uh, this came at the top of the fourth. This was a two-out infield single. So A, you have Yadiel right, not known for his speed, but B... I guess when you're running down first base, there's a little bit of leeway in terms of maneuvering your way out of the first baseline. And we saw that with Yadiel, and he ended up avoiding the tag and getting the hit. I thought that that was pretty impressive, again, given who Yadiel is. 
Well, I mean, Yadiel Hernandez and Nimble, those are two words we usually use side by side, right? That's that's who he is. That His game is built around agility and, and being nimble and all that. Hey, props to him. He made it work. And uh, yeah, you are allowed to kind of avoid the tag as long as you don't, you know, veer way out of the baseline. They'll sometimes call you for that, especially if you're in a rundown between, you know, third and home, that kind of thing. You'll see that called. But down the first baseline, as long as you're not interfering with anybody's ability to make a play, as apparently Trey Turner does all the time, you are allowed to do that. And good for him for uh, finding a way to get past that and get himself a single. And that's part of what was funny about that. The Nats have gotten victimized multiple times by the Trey Turner rule. And here you had Yadiel going out of the base path, or so it seemed, and still getting himself a hit. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. I thought that this was an interesting question that got sent to us. This is from Scotland W. Henderson, right, Scotland? I'm an everyday listener who appreciates that you watch the games so I don't have to. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of my mantras on the Yao Galdi podcast. I follow sports so you don't have to. We watch Nats games so you don't have to on the Nats Chat podcast. Uh, but Scotland asks, I think, an interesting question. He would love our thoughts on this. Was Davey Martinez better suited to manage a veteran lineup that needed an even keel manager to get them over the hump a la 2019? Is Davey perhaps not the right guy for a young team that is rebuilding as the Nats are for now and the foreseeable future? Do you think Davey is a disciplinarian type who will hold youngsters accountable for basic base running and fielding mistakes, parentheses, see Buck Showalter, and who will build a winning culture while we wait for the talent to develop? What do you think? Is Davey Martinez better suited to manage a veteran team as opposed to a younger and rebuilding team? I think everyone is better suited to manage a veteran team with talent on it, right? Like who wouldn't want a team like that? It's the whole reason why sometimes you have to be careful looking at career records and things like Dusty Baker, who's had tremendous success and pretty much everywhere he goes, he's always had a winning team. And you know what? He's almost always inherited winning teams. And it's just been a question of can he get them the most out of them and get them far in October. And then I think back to somebody like Manny Acta, who never had a chance to manage a team with any real talent. His record is terrible. It's one of the worst ever uh, among big league managers with a certain number of years on the job. But I always wondered if you gave him an all-star team, how would he do? And we never found out the answer because he didn't get the opportunity. So putting that all that aside, I do think it's an interesting question. Davey does seem like the type who is best when he can let his players sort of police themselves. And that's what he did with the veteran team. And he didn't try to get involved a lot. He's always like, hey, he he develops good relationships one-on-one with everyone, but he's not the type to go march into the clubhouse and hold a team meeting or uh, make a big spectacle out of anything. He would do it privately. He does it more one-on-one. And so on a veteran team, you have Max Scherzer and Ryan Zimmerman who kind of lead the way and set the example for everyone. You don't need a manager who's very vocal. On a young team, maybe you do need a little bit more of that. So I could understand that part of it. I will say that I think the first couple months after the trade-off last year, so things fell apart in July and then August and into September, it was a tough adjustment for him. I think there was a part of him that's like, boy, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the team that I've known here or even the last several stops, the big leagues. You know, he's on the Cubs staff under Joe Madden when they're winning. So I think it was an adjustment for him. But I think he did embrace it eventually. 
And the attitude I've gotten from him this year is that he's all in on what they're trying to do and understands that he has to take a little different approach to it and show a lot of patience with these guys. Now, is that the right approach? Is it, would it be better to be a disciplinarian? I don't know what the right thing to do is. I think there's, I think every manager has his own style and it's always about the right manager at the right time with the right team. At the moment, it doesn't look like it's great, but I don't know that anybody would be getting more out of this group right now than Davey is. The proof will be, assuming he is retained even beyond next year, does he see this thing through? Is he able to now guide them back up the ladder to become a contender again? I, we don't know the answer to that yet, but I get the question. I think it's a fair question to ask, but I would say that I don't know that there, as much as we want to think of, oh, well, this guy's a player's manager. This guy's a disciplinarian. This guy's good for a young team. This guy's good for an old team. Every manager is better when you have talent on your roster. And uh, I'd, you'd be hard pressed to find that many who make that much difference, all things being equal. Yeah. I think, first of all, there's a caveat that to me, you always have to attach to this, which is we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Maybe he is more of a disciplinarian. Maybe he cusses guys out and we just don't hear about it. And he does a great job of concealing that. So like, I think you do have to say that there's only so much that we know, especially with COVID the last few years, right? You guys have only been back in locker rooms this year. There's a lot that we probably haven't been privy to. That said, what you do is you go off of what you see. And what we have seen is a some basic things with this team over the last few years not go well, especially like the base running stuff. And then B, and this is more of an overarching thing, but, you know, lack of player development. And so I don't think it's wrong to wonder, hey, what is up when it comes to teaching with this team and with this organization and coaching guys up? I think it's interesting that Scotland mentioned Buck Showalter. Buck has a reputation for being a micromanager. And when I say micro, I mean micromanager, like every last detail this guy has his hands on. It's one of the reasons why he hasn't lasted for long in a lot of spots. It's one of the reasons why he's clashed with some people. Uh, anyone who covered the Orioles during Buck's time with the O's knows Buck and Dan Duquette hated each other. They could not stand each other as time went on. So, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a yin and a yang when you have someone like that. But I do wonder, maybe the Nats could use someone like that, someone to come in and just have his hands on everything and you know, I don't know what that would mean for Mike Rizzo, but that's a different conversation. But it's like, maybe the Nats need that right now. So we don't know. But yeah, I mean, especially with the base running, because that's something that you can control. You can't control how good your pitching is for the most part, hitting, same thing. But when you see some of the base running blunders, I mean, look, we saw on Friday night, Cesar Hernandez get picked off at first base with the Nats down big. I mean, why is that happening? Why do the Nats, it feels like every game, have at least one screw up on the base paths. And so I don't know what Davey is or isn't doing, but all I know is we keep seeing this stuff and I get the frustration. I think we're all frustrated by it. And I think we're all right to ask, why does this keep happening? Yeah, no, that's those are all fair points. That was a terrible pickoff. There was no reason for that to happen in that spot. I think it was Josh Bell at the plate, like with a game that maybe had a chance of becoming competitive again, if Bell can hit one out of the park. So no excuse for that. And yeah, base running, defense, those kind of fundamental things, the little things as Davey likes to talk about so much, when it is consistently a problem for a team, you want to look at the coaching that's going on and say, is that being done enough or not? The one thing I would say that I think is fair to ask about here is it's not discipline, but is there just an acceptance right now of how bad they are? And if they get blown out or if they make these mistakes and that 
Do they just say, well, hey, we're a bad team, we're rebuilding, shake it off, come back tomorrow? And is that a re- the right approach? Or should there be a little bit more? No, this is not acceptable. We can't let that happen again. And, you know, I'll say being in the clubhouse post games after some of these games, every once in a while, I think to myself, like, boy, they're not as down or upset as maybe I think they could be. Now, when you're well on your way to 100 losses, are you going to take every loss that hard? No, and you probably shouldn't. But every once in a while, I do think to myself, yeah, they're kind of a little bit relaxed, a little like just accepting of what they are. And they're human. Of course, that's going to happen. You accept that you are a bad, bad team. But maybe every once in a while, you'd like to see a little more fire there or a little bit taking some of those losses to heart a little bit more. And, and we don't often see that, at least during the portion of time that we're in there with them. Yeah, it's a tricky thing, too, because it sure feels like the days of the Earl Weaver types who, you know, MF everyone they see and turn over tables and throw stuff and throw tantrums. Those days seem to be done. Like, it does seem like now the approach is to be more new agey and be like Joe Madden, who is Davey Martinez's mentor and try to reach guys and in, uh, you know, progressive ways and things like that. And I get that, you know, like, and, you know, flipping over a table after a game doesn't mean that you're doing a great job as a manager, right? And, and that can actually make you look like a fool if you don't pick your spots. So, so we don't know. But yeah, when you look at the results, when you look at what we're seeing, uh, we're not seeing good things. And going back to that Cesar Hernandez pickoff, as we've noted, you know, it's not always the young guys doing that. It's veterans. I mean, the Cesar Hernandez thing, that's a veteran player, a guy who was brought here to kind of just be a stabilizer and, and play second base for the team for a season. And, you know, he gets picked off in a spot like that on Friday night, top of the fifth. He drew a one out five pitch walk, got picked off at first by Charlie Morton. For the third out, uh, not a good moment. Not a good game for the Nats on Friday night. We'll see what happens with Patrick Corbin at the Braves on Saturday. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. That's NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. We leave you now with another look back at the month that changed everything for the Nats last July, July 2021. And we leave you on this installment of the Nats Chat podcast with a look back at some game. This was a 9-8 loss at the San Diego Padres on Thursday night, July 8th, 2021. This was an anticipated game from a standpoint of the pitching matchup. Max Scherzer versus Padres ace Yu Darvish. Uh, neither guy ended up lasting for even four innings in the game. Max in this game allowed seven runs in three and two-thirds innings. He tossed three scoreless innings and then completely and shockingly unraveled in what ended up being a seven-run Padres fourth. Max, in that seven-run Padres fourth, gave up two homers, including the ultimate humiliation, a two-out grand slam by Padres reliever Daniel Camarena on a 1-2 pitch. This was Daniel Camarena's first career hit. The home run went a projected 416 feet per stat cast. How and why did the great Max Scherzer give up a grand slam to a Padres reliever named Daniel Camarena? Camarena, that sounds like the Macarena from years ago. Anyway, this was one of the more 
unexpected moments of last season. Uh, We look back at that moment and that game right now, and we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. And shockingly, Daniel Camarena is going to bat. I mean, they used Mateo. They would have two bench players left, but this is a chance to get back in the game. But they'll send Camarena, a left-handed hitting relief pitcher, to the plate. It would have made more sense to let the pitcher bat in the third and pinch hit now. Yep. Here's the pitch. Right down the middle, 94 at the knees. Again, one big league at bat a strikeout. This year at AAA El Paso, two for five. He has five career minor league hits and 25 at bats. I'm sure this will be asked of Jace Tingler after the game why they did not pinch hit for Camarena in this spot. Next pitch will be the 40th of the inning for Max. I'd go out on a limb and say Max has never had a 40-pitch inning as a national without even looking that up, Dave. The 1-2. Line drive, deep right field. It's a grand slam. Are you kidding me? It's one thing when the starter is John Lester or Patrick Corbin, but the fact that it was Max Scherzer in this game is a jaw-dropper. So much, by the way, for our pitching duel of Max Scherzer and you Darvish on Thursday night. I mean, man, did that end up being a flop. Neither guy even lasts for four innings. Max ends up giving up seven runs in three and two-thirds. Like you said, he looked great. That's what's so odd about this. Three scoreless innings, and then this complete shocking unraveling in a seven-run fourth inning. Lead-off homer by Fernando Tatis. One out hit by pitch of Manny Machado on a one-two pitch. One out single by Trent Grisham. One out hit by pitch of Eric Hosmer, despite him having been down at 1.12. The one out bases loaded walk of Will Myers, despite him having been down at 1.02. I mean, is this Gio Gonzalez or Max Scherzer pitching? And then the ultimate humiliation. And, And this is about as low as it gets. The two out grand slam by the Padres reliever, Daniel Camarena to right field on a one-two pitch for Camarena's first career hit. And the homer was a no-doubter, 416 projected feet per stat cast. And then Max gave up another extra base hit, a two-out double by Tommy Pham. This really was shocking to see Max come apart like this. There's a lot to unpack here. And it was almost like everything that happened from the moment Max left the game until the end of the game, we just talked about all these little things that were questioning what they were doing and they couldn't hit all of a sudden and Davies managing decisions and botch play in the field. It almost felt like they were just shell-shocked. Like they couldn't believe what had just happened with their ace on the mound. And it was like the rest of the game, they were swimming uphill. You know, they were still leading at that point, but it didn't feel like it. It almost felt like they knew that they had just blown the game. But I I wanted to mention that one because that was a a really atrocious play in the field and a ball that the right fielder has to call off the first baseman on. Now, let's get back to Max in the fourth inning. He said... Attention is going to be made to the grand slam, and you know, rightfully so. But for me, the way I process that inning is, you know, I had, you know, two strikes on some other batters there. Uh, Specifically, you know, I wasn't able to get Machado out. You know, I wasn't able to get Hosmer out. You know, I wasn't able to get Will Myers out. Uh, Those are the bats that extend the inning that provide that opportunity. So. You know, for me, that's what I reflect upon and how I can pitch better in those situations. Hit by pitch, hit by pitch, bases loaded walk. That's what bothered him the most. He knew that that was what decided that inning and the game, his inability to finish off hitters. And again, in a very uncharacteristic way 
for him. I mean, his command was all over the place that inning. You know, these weren't like pitches on the border that C.B. Buckner, you know, called. And let's not even forget the C.B. Buckner had a quite a night behind the plate himself as well. But Scherzer, I've never seen him go from so on point for three innings to being so off in the fourth. There was no fluke about any of that. He lost it. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.